Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we talk about how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined by our resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Well, now that I'm almost healthy, doing well, it's been a while since we've made a podcast. We had holidays, illness. I was down with COVID. Uh, and I, for a couple weeks. Mine and was so it, supposedly not COVID, but, you know, all the good sinus stuff and whatever. I think we called this in the last episode where I, I'm i traveling and you were moving back and and then we got sick. We knew yeah, it was going to happen. I'm, I mean, between and I started the year, I started traveling and first trip uh, travel. I uh, come back with COVID, so I actually think I might have left with COVID. I don't know exactly when I got it, but I had it when I returned, so. Good times. <laughs> that's that's what we've been delayed by, is all the all of the holidays, all the travel, all of the... So it was good sicknesses. and then bad. All yeah. the good holidays and then sickness and health and... All we of could that have been sick during delaying. the holidays, you know. So at least we at least we separated those. It affected the Fair. podcast, but we got to enjoy holiday and then we got to not enjoy time off. So a little bit of both things, but that's all right. Uh we're glad to have everybody back for what is going to be uh, really, the finish, as far as our notes are concerned, uh, of the last episode that we did, uh, this this first one of this year, we'll finish up uh, the Gospels. We talked last episode about what the Gospels are, uh, and we'll talk today about how the Gospels were all put together, and then the interpretation of those things uh, as we end the podcast, as we kind of set up for... Uh, looking at some narratives within the Gospels, particularly the resurrection narrative, differing details that exist there, why those things are like that, and all of that stuff. So that's coming up here. Uh, who knows how many episodes we're going to do on resurrection stuff? At least two, I would think. Who knows? Um, Probably Spencer's 15. already got the, the written notes going down and... We'll just go from there. So uh, I've got so enough if to you... talk about the resurrection accounts for the rest of our lives. So, okay. Well, there we go. We will just change this to thinking resurrectedly. I don't know. Resurrected thinking. Resurrected we do theology. It. I don't know. One of those. Uh, but if you did not listen to the last episode, make sure that you go listen to that. And it would do you well to go listen to the ones on inspiration before that. I think there were a couple uh, that we did on that as well. So uh, make sure you listen to those because these are building on each other before we get into a little bit more of uh, actually applying that information, looking into the gospel things here. Uh, as always, you can get a hold of us on Facebook. Uh, you can get a hold of Spencer on Twitter. He would really appreciate that. Uh, going in, I assume you're still on Twitter into this new year. Yes, I am. Good. I haven't been on You're Twitter good. in a little bit, but uh, probably I would appreciate best. a follow, a like, a retweet, you know, whatever you can spare. 
There we go. Yeah, whatever, whatever you can send his way, that would be great. Uh, you can also email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. I almost forgot what it was. Uh, and you can send us thoughts for future episodes. We will make room for those. We'd love to do a, a grab bag question and answer sort of deal over some of the things that we've talked about. And hopefully uh, this episode and some of the previous ones will provide some of those uh questions in your brain for us to discuss as we move forward. Uh, Before we get into how the Gospels were composed, uh, I want to read one of the quotes that we read in the last episode to kind of set up uh, what Gospels are. We we mentioned that Gospels are, are not historical, and this is what we, what we meant by all that. Uh, he or she, the reader, would not have expected strict chronological order, but rather would have looked for the contents to be arranged in the best way to bring out the character, message, and significance of Jesus within the general chronological framework of his birth, career, and death. So, birth, career, death, we follow that general chronology, but the Gospels start in different places and cover different things and all of that. The point isn't to hit all of the same details in in this sort of way, uh, but to show who Jesus is and then show why why we should follow him uh, as as the audience and all that. I call these bios. Uh, it's not historical. And, and when we read the Gospels, that's how we should be thinking. Uh, who is this Jesus? What do we see him do? What do we see him say? What do we see him uh, as the life that is given to us in, in the word here? Uh, and then what are we going to do about all of that? Uh, any more we want to say on that before we get into how the Gospels were composed? Uh, I, you know, I, I think I would just kind of remind, uh, you did this a, a little bit where, where we've come from, but also where we're going, right? We're, yeah. we're hoping as we move forward to, to talk about the resurrection accounts, uh, in the four gospels and, and comparing them and, and thinking about them and actually came from a question from someone yes. uh, listening. So submit questions. We will answer them at some point, even if it's like this, and we have to do a lot of background work before. But in essence, what we've been doing is trying to reshape the way a lot of us think about Scripture as a whole, but in this case, particularly the, the Gospels, what Scripture and the Gospels are, what they're trying to do, what they're not trying to do. And that's important because when you start getting into stories like the resurrection accounts, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, uh, why does one say this and another say that? Uh, in order to begin to answer those questions in a way that works, that actually makes sense, we've kind of have to go back and think about, well, what is a gospel? What's going on here? What are the authors trying to do? All the way back to inspiration and thinking about, well, this scripture starts with God. It starts with inspiration. And uh, back in that episode, we kind of took inspiration away from each and every word and started want think wanted to think about it more as concepts that God's inspiring and allowing the authors to then express those concepts, express those truths in a way that fits them, their knowledge, their vocabulary, that best applies to their audience that they're writing to, and things of that nature. And that fits in with the way that you just described what the Gospels in particular are, being by always these ancient biographies that aren't really concerned with chronological order, which at the most base level 
aren't necessarily trying to be historical, even though they are speaking of things that happened historically. Right. But they're focused on putting this material together in a way that presents these truths, these inspired truths, in the best way to get their audience to follow Jesus. And that's the point. They're telling the life of Jesus in a way to get people to believe and to follow. And that means that not everything's going to be in the order that it actually happens, but in the best order to get people to follow Jesus, the best order to get these inspired truths across. And once we begin to think about the Gospels in that way, as we'll see moving forward, It'll help us make better sense as we look at specific stories, and that's why I'm kind of excited about resurrection stuff. It's kind of like a case study for how does all this work in real life? What does it look like when I'm actually sitting down with my Bible, studying to study in a way with these thoughts in mind? And we're going to kind of continue to build on that in this episode while we're looking at the the, uh, composition of the Gospels. Yeah, so let's let's get into the composition of the Gospels. We we actually want to start because there are a lot of conversations about uh, how the Gospels came together and and all of that, and we'll cover a lot of those pieces. Not every argument or every bit of the discussion, but we will talk about a lot of those things here in this episode. But we want to start first uh, with Luke, chapter one, verses one through four. Uh, Luke gives us a little bit of a, an insight into, hey, here's how this all came together. Spencer, do you have that passage yes. ready to go? All right, go so for it. So Luke opens up his gospel by saying this. He says, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, Just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So there are a couple of interesting things there. Uh, Luke is, in essence, telling us how he composed his gospel. So you kind of take a step back and you think of, okay, so the gospel authors are putting together the life of Jesus, not in a historical way, but in a way to get people to follow Jesus. God's kind of overseeing the process, inspiring the, the kind of concepts. But then you have the question, but these specific stories the specific sayings of Jesus, things like that. Where is all of this information coming from? Well, Luke tells us. He says, it's interesting, he starts out by saying that he's not the first one to try to do this. He says, many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of what's happened with this man named Jesus, Mm. right? And so he's not the first one to do that. And he talks about this information being handed down by those who are eyewitnesses of everything that happened, which is not Luke. Luke didn't witness these things, but he says, I've decided to sit down like other people have to write out an account of the life of Jesus based on what those who were there said happened. And so what does Luke say that he did? He investigated everything carefully. He went 
and gathered material. He interviewed people. He talked to people. Whatever that means, he went through an investigation based on eyewitness accounts to try to figure out and put together a story of the life of Jesus. And so even in Scripture, we're told how the Gospels were composed. The the writers like Luke investigated, gathered together sources and material about the life of Jesus, and then used that material, used those sources to put together their gospel. Um, And in doing that, that means that Luke becomes, if you read scholars talking about gospels and stuff like that, and I'm going to do my best not to use too much jargon uh, so that everyone understands what I'm talking about. So, Jack, if I start doing that, uh, feel free to, sure. to call what does me jargon on and we mean? can explain I'm kidding. Ter- ter- terminology. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll start with not even knowing what I'm telling people I'm not going to be doing so that they will Perfect. know. Anyways, Perfect. but when you start thinking about what Luke's doing, compiling sources, uh, compiling eyewitness accounts, uh, compiling material, Luke then becomes an editor. That is, he has to choose, okay, what am I going to include? What am I not going to include? We've talked about that before. John tells us that all the books in the world couldn't hold everything that Jesus did, right? So the gospel authors have to choose. They've got all this material that Luke's gathered. Now he's got to choose, okay, what do I want to include? What do I not want to include? And what order do I want to tell it in? What story do I want to be first? What story do I want in the middle? What story do I want at the end? What stories do I want back to back? And again, going back to our last episode, Luke's doing all that in a way that he believes will best get the audience that he's writing to, to believe and to follow Jesus. And we're going to talk about this at the end of this episode, but that plays a role in how we interpret the Bible or the the Gospels. So when you're reading a story, it's important to look at, well, what story comes before and what story comes after and why? Why does Luke choose to include this story and why does he tell it here instead of somewhere else? And again, that just kind of goes, I think, to show why it's important to start thinking about how they were composed because it does make a difference in how we interpret what's yep. going on when yep. we understand, well, Luke had to make a choice to include this and he had to make a choice to put it here. And we can learn more from the story when we're asking those questions and try to figure out, well, why might Luke have chosen to do it in this way? And it just brings, I think it helps bring the Gospels even more to life than they are otherwise. And before we get into the uh, types of sources, um, just keep keep that in mind. Like we are we are saying, Luke is an inspired writer. He's inspired. We're, we already talked about inspiration and thoughts on that. Again, go back and watch or listen to those if you have not already. Uh, but you might be tempted as we're going through talking about sources, and maybe it worked this way and whatever that it's not an either or sort of thing. You know, did they, were these just normal guys who looked at words and then just did whatever they wanted and it got accepted or 
is the Holy Spirit playing a part in this composition? Yeah, it's it's both of those things. It's not either or. Uh, these are composed by inspired writers, but that inspired writer told us that he used sources uh, and compiled these things together in that way. It's, it's both of those working in tandem. Uh, so ignore the temptation to go, wow, they're just throwing the Holy Spirit out. Uh, and ignore the temptation to go, Holy Spirit involvement means you can't do things this way. Because again, Luke tells us exactly how he put this stuff together, and it very much affects how we how we think about, as, as Spencer said, how we think about these texts, and causes us to have a, a, a better understanding, or at least questions to wrestle with as we go through. Uh, several sources here, it looks like, five uh, that we're going to look at. Uh, Spencer, let's go through those, well, however quick or slow you want to here, I guess. Just make sure you don't use too fancy of words. (laughs) Starting with source number one. I'll do my best. Synoptic problem. I'll kind of do my best not (laughs) to uh, take too long, because I could spend the rest of my life talking about this. But uh, like you said, the it's important for us to recognize the spirits at work in all this. What we're asking is how did the spirit do this in essence? How is the the spirit working in the life of, of Luke? And so Luke says that he gathered these sources, gathered these materials to write his gospel. So what, what are some of the materials that Luke and the other gospel writers are most likely using? Well, uh, the, the first thing that we have to think about is what's called the synoptic problem. Uh, so the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason they're called the synoptic gospels is if you've read the gospels, one of the first things that will stick out to you when you read through the gospels is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They're, they sound similar. They tell the same kinds of stories. Uh, They tell a lot of the stories in the same kind of way. John doesn't do that. Uh, Just a casual reader of the Bible will most likely recognize that John reads very different than uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke read. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are called the synoptic gospels. And the synoptic problem is maybe problem might not be the best word, but that's what it's called. It's in essence that we have to find a way to explain the similarities between the synoptic gospels, the similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So this is what I mean by that. The, The gospel of Mark has 661 verses. It's the shortest of all of our Gospels. It's the first Gospel that was ever written, 661 verses. More than 600 of those verses appear in Matthew. 600 of the 661 verses in Mark also appear in Matthew. And we're not talking about loosely the same. We're talking about almost verbatim, almost word for word. If you were an English teacher at a high school, you would accuse Matthew of cheating off of Mark because they turned in almost the exact same paper. Matthew's is just a longer version of Mark. So 600 of the 661 verses 
of Mark appear in Matthew, 350, more than 350 verses of Mark appear in Luke. So over half of Mark also appears in Luke, and almost all of Mark appears somewhere in Matthew. Hmm. And so the synoptic problem is trying to explain, well, how did that happen? How did 600 verses of Mark show up in Matthew and 350 verses of Mark show up in Luke? How does that happen? Well, the way that most scholars explain that is with what is called Markan priority. And that is that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source. So when Luke is saying that he gathered all of this material to write his gospel, most scholars believe that one of those pieces of material, one of those sources, was the gospel of Mark. So the gospel of Mark is generally dated before the year 70, probably in the mid-60s, about 65 Whereas Matthew and Luke are dated in the 70s and 80s, Um, Matthew is normally dated before Luke, so most scholars believe Mark was written first, and then Matthew was written, and then the Gospel of Luke was written, and then John was the last gospel written somewhere at the end of the first century. So most scholars explain the similarity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke by saying, well, Mark was the first gospel written— and then Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source. And I I think that makes a lot of sense, not only because that's the simplest explanation for the similarity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that Matthew and Luke were using Mark, but also think again about what Luke tells us that he's doing. He says, many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, right? He's saying other people have attempted to write a biography of the life of Jesus. It's hard for me to believe that Mar- that Luke's not thinking of the Gospel of Mark because it's already been written 10, 15 years before, probably circulated around the different churches it's hard for me to believe that Luke didn't know about the Gospel of Matt, Matt, uh, the that Luke didn't know about the Gospel of Mark, especially since we believe that the Gospel of Mark was inspired by God, that it's an important book. Luke had to have known about it. I think Mark is one of the things that he's referring to here. And so when he says that he took it upon himself to gather all this material of the life of Jesus, I also find it hard to believe that he wouldn't have grabbed the gospel of Mark. If Luke's trying to do the best job that he can to get all the information he can about the life of Jesus, why wouldn't you get the gospel of Mark? The first gospel written, a gospel that's inspired, a gospel that's been around for 10, 15 years. I mean, it it just, that makes sense. At least in my mind, it makes sense that Mark would have been not the only, but would have been one of these sources, would have been a part of this material that Luke's investigating, that Luke's bringing together in order to write his 
gospel. And so that's really the first source, the gospel of Mark. Mark writes his gospel, and then Matthew and Luke use Mark as well as other material when they're trying to put together their gospels. Have we talked about the ending of the gospel of Mark? You and I have. I don't think we've talked about it on the on this particular episode. Well, I'll just add a little side note here. The ending of the original ending of Mark's gospel uh, is viewed by some as a terrible ending. That's debatable. I like the ending, but it's even possible that Matthew and Luke used Mark because they wanted to give it a better ending. Or that they wanted to expand it. So they kind of took Mark, what Mark's kind of framework, and expanded it. Which would also make sense. Mark's the first one to write a gospel. No one's done that before. It's easier to do it the second time than the first time. Which is probably why Mark's gospel is shorter as well. Uh, So you have Matthew and Luke using Mark, maybe to give it a better ending. Maybe just to expand it. Um, Who knows what they were thinking. But that seems to make the most sense of why not only they're so similar, but it seems to make sense with what Luke's saying. Other people have done this, and I've been investigating it. Well, who do we know that's already done this? Mark, for sure, has already done this. Would make sense that Mark would be part of this investigation. Right. Yeah. Uh, So we, we noted here a lot of the similarities. That's what has been called the synoptic problem, whether we like that word or not, uh, the similarities in Matthew and Mark and then Luke and Mark, um, what do we, what do we do to account for, <clears throat> I say we, what, what is some of the discussion around accounting for the differences that exist there? Where, where do all of these, uh, maybe different details or things that are in Luke, but not in Mark or things in Matthew and not in Mark? What, what is the, the consensus on, where that stuff came from. Yeah, so you you have, there's another, for lack of a better term, problem. There's another thing that has to be explained in one way or another. And again, there's multiple ways to explain it. So the way that I'm explaining it is not the only way that it could be explained. But these are the ways that most people go about explaining. So you've got the similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then you have similarities between Matthew and Luke. So there are somewhere around 235 verses or 4,500 words that are in Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark. So not only do Matthew and Luke have verbatim statements from Mark— but Matthew and Luke also have verbatim statements from one another. Again, if you were like an English teacher at a high school, you would not only accuse Matthew and Luke of copying off of Mark, but you probably would also accuse Matthew and Luke of copying off each other because they have 235 verses between the two of them that aren't in Mark, but also agree almost exactly word for word, right? If Because if you have two people writing about the same event completely independent, it's going to sound the same, but it's not going to be the same. The words aren't going to match. 
But when you have two people writing about the same events using the exact same words, what comes to our mind? Well, someone's copying off of someone. They're either copying off each other or there's something else that they're copying off of. There's a third thing. And that's generally, not the only way, that's generally how the similarities between Matthew and Luke are explained. They're explained with a second source. So you have Mark as the first source. The second source is what's called Q. And Q stands for the German word quell, which means source. So Q is just German for source. Um, And what many scholars believe Q is, is that Q was a document in the first century that was made up primarily of what's called sayings material. So it wouldn't have been composed of stories where you've got a setting and you've got a narrator and you've got, you know, like, then Jesus entered into Jerusalem and went to the house of so-and-so, and it wouldn't be that kind of stuff. By sayings material, what that means is just statements or teachings of Jesus. Normally not very long, but just with sayings without any context. Some of you listening may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas before. It's a work that dates probably to the early 2nd century It's not considered to be inspired, so it's not in our Bibles. But if you Google the Gospel of Thomas, you can actually read it. And that's an example of a document made up of sayings material of Jesus. And so it's just one statement after another statement after another statement attributed to Jesus with no context. And the statements generally aren't extremely lengthy. And so most scholars believe that there was some kind of source like this, that was just a list of sayings of Jesus that both Matthew and Luke had. So again, Luke's compiling sources. Scholars would say, well, he grabbed the Gospel of Mark. He grabbed this Q source. He grabbed this list of sayings of Jesus. And these is and this is some of the material that he used to write his Gospel. So we're kind of thinking of the Gospels almost like you writing a research paper. Right? You're gathering together sources, uh, you're gathering together research material in order to write a biography, kind of like what Luke is doing. Uh, but both Matthew and Luke, using this Q source, these sayings, in the writing of their gospel, would be one way that would explain how they have 235 verses just between the two of them that are pretty much identical It's that they took it from this third uh, source, this Q source. Now, like I said, there's other explanations for that. I know some scholars that would say, well, Matthew had already been written and Luke had a copy of Matthew. That's a possibility. There's other possibilities. Um, But what seems to make the most sense is that Matthew and Luke have some kind of other source, some other material in common that they're using to compose their gospel. And so you get them using the exact same wording. 
uh, to tell some of their stories. Sure. Yeah. And, and there's, uh, that makes sense. Um, if, uh, if you're going to have very specific wording between two people and it's not within Mark either, then, you know, what, what do you do? What other, uh, what other thoughts might you have? And you might be tempted if you're, depending on what your view of inspiration is to say, oh, that's, well, that's inspiration. Okay. But if that's where you're going with that, that these very specific words were dictated and all of that, uh, then why not for, why not for all of them? Number one. And number two, you're going to have some trouble when we get into the resurrection narratives because they don't, they're, they're very different uh, on a lot of the details and a number of things. So, and I think, I think inspiration is, I don't want to discount that as a explanation and sure. Right. That that's possible, but I don't think Dick, the Holy spirit dictating the words makes the most sense. That's just my opinion. You can people can feel free to just dis- disagree with me. That's perfectly fine. We talked about some of the problems I see in kind of a dictation type idea of inspiration when we talked about inspiration. But like you said, it doesn't make sense to me why they wouldn't do that for everything. Because there are other stories that both Matthew and Luke have that aren't told in the same way at all. Why? I, that that doesn't make sense if it's to me. If it's the Holy Spirit that accounts for all of this. But I, again, like we started off with, I would say the Spirit was involved. Why did Matthew and Luke choose to use these 235 verses from Q and not 200 other verses from Q? Right. The Spirit. The Spirit was involved in that process in some way even if the spirit wasn't giving the specific words that matched the spirit was involved and in guiding the entire process yep yeah no very good and uh i want to be careful how i say this the the answer of well that's just spirit things uh then where do you point to with that as far as um spirit evidence i guess is where where would you go to show that because again we started with this section of luke 1 1 through 4 where luke says i took these things and compiled them and eyewitness accounts and all of this and and put this together spirit being involved in all of that process uh and so we we don't need to be scared of sources um and uh, and concerned about okay, well, what does all of that mean? What does all of that do? Does it just make this a, a regular uh, writing like anybody today might write? No, uh, because the things written today are not inspired. This very much has God behind all of it, but that does not mean that couldn't be compiled and things from from sources like that. Uh, Q, if I'm not mistaken, what we just talked about. Uh, would have to do more with the the writing the the written source sort of thing, uh, especially when it comes to the uh, exact uh, phrasing between Matthew and Luke, for example. the The sentences being the same means it was written down. You could look at it and just directly input it from one place to another. Yes. Uh, the next source are things that aren't written, stuff that 
we may not always think about when we're reading uh, some of these narratives within the gospel, uh, and that is oral tradition. Tell us a little bit about oral tradition, Spencer. So, uh, some of you may have heard of the at least the concept of oral tradition and being connected with scripture in in some way. So the the first century society was an oral society, whereas our world today is written. And the difference is is that information in the first century was predominantly passed on from one person to another, from one generation to another orally. It, it was. Sp- spoken, it was remembered, and then it was spoken again, and that's how things were passed on. Whereas today, things tend to be written. We write things down to pass on information. Um, And that's why we have textbooks, right? We write down the information so that it can be passed on to other people. We have textbooks, we have regular books, we have blogs and articles, we have our laws written down, right? It's not, we don't expect things to just stay spoken, but we write them down. And so our world of information today is very different than the world of information in the first century. And one of the primary reasons for that is it was much more difficult and much more expensive to write things in the first century. Today, it's easy. Anyone with a computer or a cell phone can write things down. You can create a blog. You can create a website. You can create notes. I mean, it's real easy to write down information. In the first century, it wasn't like that. Writing materials were rare, and so writing materials were expensive. It was an expensive thing to write something down. So take the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, for example. That's kind of what we've been coming back to. Luke is writing for this person named Theophilus. And there's a lot of debate that happens about who Theophilus is, and even if Theophilus is a real person. That's not important for what we're talking about. Uh, Other than the point that one of the possible explanations is that Theophilus is the is a patron of Luke for the purpose of writing this gospel. In other words, many believe that Theophilus is a real person, and regardless of who he is as a real person, that he's in some ways funding the writing of Luke and Acts because it was so expensive. So someone would have had to have provided the funds and the material to write what Luke is writing. Very well may have been Theophilus. And so that's why things didn't always get written down, because it took time, it took money uh, to be able to do this. And so things would be passed on orally. And so you think about the life of Jesus. Jesus was born about 3 BC, died around 30 AD, And the first gospel, the first life of Jesus, is written about 65 AD, 35 years later, 35 years after the death of Jesus. So what happened to the stories of Jesus' life in that 35 years? How were they passed on? Well, they were passed on orally. Some of the things might have been written down before Mark, but you didn't, at least 
based on the evidence that we have, there wasn't anything like a gospel, like a full story of the life of Jesus for 35 years after the death of Jesus. And so Jesus' life would have been just told orally. It would have been passed on through stories. And so when the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are sitting down and telling about the life of Jesus, they probably would have had written sources. We talked about Matthew and Luke having Mark, having Q, maybe even having some other written sources. But they also would have had this oral tradition. They would have known the stories that had been orally passed on to them. So different ones of our authors, like Luke, if it is uh, the, the Luke that many believe it was that wrote the Gospel of Luke, then Luke has connections with Paul. Luke has connections with Peter. And so if that's true, these people, particularly an apostle like Peter, would have told Luke orally things that Jesus did. Jesus did this. Jesus taught this. Never written down, but Luke would have heard these stories. And Luke would have known them, had them in the back of his mind as he's writing his gospel, as he's writing his biography of Jesus. He would have had the, this oral tradition that was never written down. And that's one way to explain some of the stories that you find in the different gospels that aren't told the exact same, right? So with the written uh, sources, that explains things that match up verbatim because you're copying off something, right? When something in Matthew and Luke match Mark word for word, makes the most sense that they were copying from Mark. When you have things in Matthew and Luke with the exact same wording, it makes sense that they were copying from Q. But then you have other stories that are the same stories, but they the wording doesn't match. Well, where did those come from? Well, one of the likely explanations is it's from this oral tradition. It was stories that all the writers knew because they had been told, but they had just never been written down maybe before. That can also explain why... Uh, you have additions. You know, Mark tells a story, and maybe Matthew tells the same story, but he adds to it. He he provides detail that Mark doesn't. Well, where did Matthew get that extra information from? Well, maybe the story that Matthew heard was a more detailed version than the story that Mark heard. So he takes Mark's, and he adds more detail based on the oral story that Matthew had been told by someone that was actually there, possibly. That's just kind of conjecture, but that seems to make sense of what we have going on in the different Gospels. Now, the problem when you start thinking about oral tradition is that we don't know what it is because as soon as something gets written down, it's no longer oral tradition, right? So by necessity, oral tradition there's doesn't exist in a way that we can go back and look at it, that we can analyze it because it's oral. It's not written down. Only that stuff that was written down in the first century is what survives today. So we have a difficult time understanding exactly how oral tradition works. But this is one thing that we do know, is that when or when stories were told, it was important 
to maintain the story's basic structure, but the one telling the stories would have the freedom uh, with the the details. And that is, all the details didn't have to be necessarily accurate or the same, as long as the primary story and the point of the story remained the same. And it's the same thing today when you think about eyewitness accounts. So let's say someone witnesses a robbery, and you've got two people that saw it, and they're both giving their eyewitness accounts to the police. Well, it doesn't really matter what color jacket the person was wearing, let's say. One person says it was red, one person says it was black. But if they can both describe what the person looked like and identify the person, that's what matters for the story. Those other little details are not that important because as human beings... It's hard for us to remember every itty-bitty detail exactly. And so oral tradition was fine with that. It was fine that some of those smaller details would change as long as the main story and the purpose of the story never changed, which is part of the reason that you get the same story told in different ways in the different Gospels is because the oral tradition might have been slightly different, But you read them, it's the same story. It's the same point. There's nothing significant that's different. It's just you have a different eyewitness telling the exact same events, like we would understand eyewitnesses working today. Yeah. Um, And part of the... uh, This is all all in an attempt to account for why there would be similarities here, word for word... Uh, with the written stuff and then you know differences or things that are only found in this gospel or two of the gospels and all of that but as you said you can't really trace it's not like we have voice recordings of uh, the various oral tradition sort of stuff once it's written down now it becomes something that's written and our reference is purely gospel oriented we know about this because it's in luke but he may have it may have been a story orally circulating for however many years uh, up well, to that point. And I think it's important to realize, you, you kind of talked about this uh, uh, a little bit of, you know, how do we balance trying to explain kind of the human side of how this works, which is what we're doing with sources, and staying true to the God side of this, the, the inspiration of the Spirit. Because the Spirit and God works through, as Paul says, earthen vessels. It works through human beings, and God works in human ways. Jesus is the prime example. Uh, Jesus was fully human. God did the most amazing thing ever in a human way by becoming a human being. And so we have to balance these two things. And it's so important Because on one side, we could just attribute it all to human beings. God didn't have anything to do with it. But we can go to the other side and, well, the human beings were just robots. God dictated everything from the similarities to the differences. Well, I I had a professor in school who said something that stuck with me to this day. And I think I've said this on an episode before, that we need to be careful where we place our mystery 
that God is mysterious and there's a lot we can't explain. But we have to be careful where we draw that line. If we draw it too far, then we try to explain things about God that we have no right to explain. But if we draw it too early, then we block ourselves off from knowing and understanding God and his methods, growing closer to God, being able to explain God to other people in ways that we have a right to do because we just say, well, we can't know. That's just God passing it off to, to God. And we use it as an excuse sometimes not to have to give an answer. And so I think it's important when we think about questions like this, at least for me, put yourself in the shoes of a non-believer who's asking these questions about the gospels. Well, why does this match? Why does this doesn't why doesn't this match? Why is this different? Why is this the same story but not told the same way? And if your answer was just, well, it, it's God, don't ask the question. How would you feel with that answer? Is that a good enough answer? And with some things, that's the only answer we have. That's where faith comes in. But we have to be careful that we don't use God as an escape route not to answer people's questions. Because I think this is an example of where we can better explain what God was doing. And God's given us the information and the ability and the intelligence to do that and say, well, this seems to be what God was doing. There's still faith in that, but it's not—we're not using— God to escape the difficult questions or to escape the difficult answers. And that's what we just have to be careful. There comes a point where we have to stop and just say, we don't know. The Trinity is an example. God's three in one. I can't say much more about it because we don't know. But we have to make sure we don't do that too early. And I think that's detrimental to us. And it's also detrimental in trying to talk to people outside of the faith. Agreed. And that's part of what this podcast is all about, is uh, thinking through these things and trying to understand or at least know how to try to reason through those questions. We are uh, we're uh, running up against it as far as time goes. So uh, last this one will go quick here as far as our last source. It won't be relevant, I don't think, for our resurrection narrative discussion, but we thought it would be good to mention here. Uh, while we're talking about this, and then we can always uh, come back more and fill in the gaps on that here, uh, too. The last one being the Septuagint uh, as uh, as a big source. Why is it important that we mention the Septuagint as a source? So the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament, and the writers of the New Testament, not just the Gospels, but the entire New Testament, were Greek speakers. And so their Bible, the Bible of the first century, the Old Testament of the first century, was the Septuagint. It wasn't the Hebrew version. It was the Greek version. And that's simply important because when we see quotations and references in the New Testament to the Old Testament, there are quotations and references to the Greek version, which doesn't always completely match up with the Hebrew version. That's why if you've ever read like Paul quoting the Psalms and Romans, and then you go back and read this, that same Psalm in your Bible, it doesn't always quite match up. Uh, that's because Paul's using a different version, but that would have been one of, that would have been their biblical source 
as the Gospels or anything in the New Testament was being written would have been the Greek version. Uh, real quickly, I'll blow th- since we're we are running up close to our time. I'll yeah. mention uh, two more things real quick. Another thing that's important in reference to the Gospels, uh, Jesus most likely spoke Aramaic, not Greek. Aramaic is kind of a hybrid version of Hebrew. It's Hebrew mixed with some other languages, so it's Hebrew-like. Most Jews in the first century would have spoken Aramaic, not Hebrew, and maybe not even Greek. And so since Jesus did most of his teaching to Jews, he probably would have taught in the language that most Jews or a language that all Jews would have known. And it seems that all Jews would not have known Hebrew, not all Jews would have known Greek, but all Jews would have known Aramaic. So it makes most sense that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Our Gospels are written in Greek, which means the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels are translations. Jesus spoke it in Aramaic. The Gospel writers translated it and wrote it down in Greek. And then that's translated again into our English Bibles, uh, which is just something doesn't make much of a difference, but there are some places where it's kind of interesting to go back and think of, well, this is probably what Jesus would have said at Aramaic, which makes things make a little more sense with what you're saying. So that's something else to keep in mind. It's also important to keep in mind who the Gospels were written to. Um, historically, people have believed that the Gospels were written to churches, like Paul's letters, right? Paul believe, begins to the church in Rome, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Philippi. He's writing to a specific group of Christians addressing their needs. That's probably what the uh, Gospels are doing too. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing the story of Jesus with a particular audience, with a particular church, a particular group of Christians in mind. There has actually been a recent book that's called that into question, and has made the argument that the Gospels were written for a general Christian audience, not a specific church community. I think it makes more sense that they were written similar to Paul's letters. Paul is writing to a specific church, but Paul had the knowledge that his letters would be circulated, that they'd be passed on to other churches, because he talks about his letters doing that. Probably what the Gospels were doing too. Matthew's probably writing to a specific church, to speak to them about Jesus, to tell that story in a way that appeals the best to them, to get them to follow or to continue to follow Jesus with the knowledge and the desire that his gospel then be passed on to other churches and help the Christian community as a whole throughout the world. And that's, again, important when we think about interpreting the gospels because we need to figure out, well, what church is Matthew writing to? Because that impacts the way that Matthew writes, what he chooses to tell and how he chooses to tell it, which plays a role in our process of trying to interpret what's going on in the Gospels, which is kind of the entire point of us talking about this, is to figure out how do we interpret and understand what's actually going on in the Gospel accounts. Uh, Yeah, and just one last thought before we move into this last, last thought, I guess. Firstly, in conclusion, and then secondly, in conclusion here in a moment. <laughs> in a typical preacher uh, fashion, we've right. got two conclusions. Uh, doing the Paul thing with, with lots of uh, finalies. Um, we want to reiterate inspiration. 
and how that all connects here. We started with Luke and Luke's words talking about compiling sources. It's not an either-or thing, but all of that spirit working in that process uh, to provide uh, what we have within these three synoptic gospels uh, for the for the various audiences that they were written to. Again, I'm with Spencer more on that of more to a more specific audiences, though they have application to all, as we will see now in our final, final thoughts here, uh, how we interpret the Gospels. And this is this is going to be true, just generally speaking, of all of Bible books that you read, like where we start and then where we end up, though we may start from different spots. But uh, how, how should we interpret the Gospels? What are the three levels that you've got here? So, yeah, the, the Gospels, which are going to have three levels of interpretation, which is different than Paul's letters. Uh, it, it's I'm trying, since we're running up against time, I'll, I'm going to try not to get too much into this. But narrative, that is stories, always have an extra level of interpretation. That's something like a letter or law or something like that isn't going to have. And so, for example, like with Paul's letters, you've got, okay, Paul's original. What is Paul trying to say to the church in Rome? First level of meaning. And then we can figure out, okay, what does that mean for us today? What did Paul mean in the, in the first century? What does it mean for us today in the 21st century? Narratives, stories like the Gospels, have one additional level of meaning. So regarding the Gospels, we interpret the Gospels first by asking, what was Jesus' original meaning to his original Jewish audience? So let's take the Sermon on the Mount, for example. When Jesus is there teaching to this crowd of Jews, or when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees in the first century and Jesus says X, What did Jesus mean to the Pharisees at that time, at that moment? What did Jesus mean to this crowd of Jews on that mountaintop at that moment? Mm. Step one, level one. Level two is what is the author's original meaning to his original church or Christian audience? So Matthew then writes this story of Jesus. So first we have to ask, what did Jesus mean? But now we need to ask, what did Matthew mean? Why is Matthew telling this story? And what is Matthew trying to get across to his Christian audience that he's writing to? You know, when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and calling them like whitewashed tombs, he's telling the Pharisees, stop doing this and start doing this. Well, the audience of the gospel writers probably aren't doing exactly what the Pharisees are doing. There's some application for them, but it might be slightly different. And I would hope that they, the church audience isn't quite as bad at some of these things that the Pharisees were. But Matthew or Mark or Luke or John is still trying to make a point. And so you have Jesus meaning, you have the writer's meaning, which may not be exactly the same. And then you have the applied meaning to us today. Well, what what does this mean to me today? And so you have these three levels of interpretation, 
which sometimes we negate those. Sometimes we want to say, well, this is what Jesus meant, and then go straight to what it means for us today, skipping what Matthew or Mark or Luke meant, which is problematic. Um, Because there are things that Jesus, Matthew might be doing something different than what Jesus was doing, because it's a different, Matthew's writing to a different context than Jesus was speaking to, right? When Jesus goes and overturns tables in the temple, he's doing something a little bit different than the gospel writers are doing when they tell that story to their Christian audience, because they're not overthrowing tables in the temple. Their Christian audience probably isn't selling animals for profit in the temple. Probably not. So they're probably doing something a little different. We don't get anywhere close to doing that today. So it probably means something even a little more different to us. Uh, we're not, most of us don't sell animals in our church for profit. We might do other things negatively for profit, but it's probably not selling animals. Um, and so those are the three things that we need to ask. What did Jesus mean? What did the gospel author mean? And then what does it mean for us today? And we'll kind of start to put that into practice when we look at the resurrection accounts. Um, Because that also goes into, you think about the resurrection. Uh, Each gospel author tells the resurrection in a slightly different way to make a slightly different point. Which is also why it's important not only to ask, well, what did Jesus mean when he said or did this? And then what point are the authors trying to make? Because each one is trying to do something slightly different, but all built on what originally happened, which then we have to figure out, okay, how does that carry over to today? As Spencer said, we will pursue that, all that stuff uh, within the resurrection here in a couple weeks with uh, our, our next episode, barring any more sicknesses or travel or any number of other things i suppose that could derail us but that's the plan that we'll see you in a couple weeks uh, again you can get a hold of us uh, spencer on twitter both of us on facebook or at our email strongchurchministries at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you uh, even if the the things that we hear from you aren't you know the best that's fine you can complain you can suggest you can uh, compliment us too if you feel like it get a hold of us and join us for our next episode as we take these things about inspiration and gospel composition uh, into the resurrection narratives and uh, use those as as case studies for what we're talking about here i'm jack that's spencer we'll see you next time